So the Holy Trinity and uh, Jesus Christ. Um, these are like the two most important central mysteries of the Catholic faith, of the Christian faith. So um, at the Dominican House, we do two courses on this, two semester-long courses. So you're getting two semester-long courses in, say, 30 minutes. So it'll be a wild ride. We'll see, we'll see how we do. I mean, obviously, we're not treating this as an academic subject. We're treating it as a mystery of faith that we want to come to know. And um, maybe we could just start with the truth that every Sunday, uh, if, you, you know, if you go to a Catholic Mass, how does the Mass begin? It begins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How is someone baptized? in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And every Christian prayer really begins in this way. If you look at the, the structure of the Eucharistic prayer at Mass, it, it's, uh, has, all three divine persons are, are being referred to or somehow come up in that. Um, when we say the creed, of course the creed is Trinitarian. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Okay, there's an opening section about God, the Father, and then about Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Consubstantial with the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Oh, okay, there's a whole lot of stuff there. Why is all that in there? Okay, we're going to talk about that. And in the Holy Spirit. I think it's, it's right to say that believing in the Trinity, it, this is not a detail, this is not a footnote, this is not like a little abstract uh, thing. It is the substance of the Christian faith. Okay, so we're here at the very central truth. Now, that doesn't mean that it's an easy truth or that it's obvious exactly what it means. That's something that you can enter into over your as you grow in faith and over your whole life of faith. But in fact, when you are baptized, you are baptized into this mystery, and it's a wonderful, beautiful, saving mystery. Okay, how do we know anything about it? We know it because Jesus reveals it to us. That's kind of the bottom line. Um, it is foreshadowed at certain points in the Old Testament, but you cannot know it from uh, just learning about the world around you. You cannot discover it with your mind. God has to reveal it to you. Why? Because he is revealing who he is from the inside. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to, and, and it's not just to you privately, of course, because this is a part of the, the public proclamation of the faith. So, Jesus Christ is above all the one who reveals this, and we find this all over the place in Scripture. Um, for example, uh, you know, Jesus frequently says things like, this is John 16, 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Okay, so if we believe Jesus, then we have to ask, well, what does that mean? This is not, a, sorry, this is not on your handout. I'm just throwing out. We'll get to the handout in just a second. I'm not strictly following the handout. The handout's, uh, okay, he says uh, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. He says, this is John 10.30, also not in your handout. Uh, the Father and I are one. He says in Matthew, Matthew 11.27, 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And also he says, no one comes to the Father except by me. And then he also tells us about the Holy Spirit. He says he will send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, from the Father. And we also read in St. Paul's letters that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Son who gives us a share in the Son's eternal life, that is, the inheritance of the Son. So you are made an adopted son or daughter of the Father by the Holy Spirit who gives you a share in the inheritance. So it's the inheritance that the Son has by nature from the Father you are given to share in by being an adopted son or daughter. And that heritage, that inheritance comes to you as you receive the Holy Spirit. And it is Jesus who pours out the Holy Spirit as he did on the apostles the night of the resurrection, Easter Sunday night. He appeared in the upper room to the apostles and what does he do? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit to us. In fact, through his death and resurrection, he, he breathes forth the Holy Spirit on the world. Okay, so this is actually this is very profound mysteries. We could, just, we could just stop with what I just recited and try and unpack that in a way. And that's sort of what the rest of this talk is about, is unpacking some of these Mysteries. Now, um, it's not just obvious how to unpack them. And the scripture is communicating to us these very deep truths. And it actually is possible to like get kind of mixed up when you, if you try to work this out on your own. Uh, which is why the church has developed over centuries a long tradition of reflecting on this. Because um, the answers are not just obvious, but the church has always had a very strong conviction about who Jesus is and what he is telling us about his Father and who the Holy Spirit is. And so it's not as if these, these were questions that the church didn't know the answers and had to then make up answers and legislate them. That's not what happened over time. What did happen is various... Uh, misunderstandings began to be proposed as time went on and the church had to say, hold on, we've never thought that. That is definitely not what we think. We have always thought this over here. And so there's a process of clarification that happened in the first, say, six centuries of the church's faith, five centuries, um, where some of the classic misunderstandings of what you read in scripture came to the surface and the church was able to say, no, that is a misunderstanding. That's a totally wrong interpretation. Here's the right interpretation. So that's actually why also looking at some of the ancient misunderstandings or even, I mean, more stronger term than that, heresies. These are affirmatively false portrayals of, of, uh, of Jesus, for example, or the Trinity. Why they're helpful to us because most of the worst ones we got out of the way at the beginning. Now, it's not that 
these things don't have a way of popping back up. They do, because they're kind of the classic misunderstandings. But the church has already kind of clarified and dealt with them. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that too. But before we get to that, maybe we can just look at this handout. This just kind of sets the problem up for us. And look at, look at this page that says the, the Old Testament on the divine name. This just kind of helps you uh, immediately get a grasp of what we're talking about with both the Trinity and Jesus. Okay, so these are three passages. I'm not going to read them. Um, but what do, you, what do you see there? If the Jewish people believed anything, if there was any kind of creed of the Jewish people, it was that there is only one God, right? They lived in a pagan world. They're surrounded by nations who worship many different gods, many different idols. And it's the constant refrain of uh, ancient Israel, like we belong to the one God and there's only one and all the other idols, they're not gods at all. And God reveals himself to the people of Israel, and that's how he gathers them as a people. So this is the famous passage of Moses hearing God speak to him from the burning bush at Mount Sinai. The first is the first passage, Exodus 3. Now, why is this so important? Because God reveals in a mysterious way his name. Now, this comes up, it's very important actually for the Trinity and for Christology, for understanding Christ. So Moses asks, uh, what, is, what is your name? God said to Moses, I am who am. I mean, that's very mysterious. God is. And then you get in the next paragraph, God also said to Moses, say this, the Lord, the God of your fathers, okay, Lord is in all caps, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus am I, am I to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, here, just a little footnote. In the uh, original, you don't, in the original Hebrew, you don't have uh, the word um, Lord there. What you have is uh, what's called the, well, it's four letters in Hebrew, which is transliterated Y, uh, what is it, Y-H-W-H. Now, this was an abbreviation we think. We, it's very mysterious. We don't actually know exactly what that abbreviation stood for. And when people say Yahweh, that's, a, that's an approximation or kind of reconstruction by scholars much later. Why? Because God is revealing his mysterious name and they thought it was so holy they didn't even want to write it down. Nor did they think that it was right for us to pronounce it. So they just wrote down these initials as a kind of abbreviation. Now, when the, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, now this is just the probably thinking, Father, I really don't care about this. Okay, but stay with me for a second. When it's translated into Greek, they didn't translate the four letters. What instead they put in there was the word Kyrios, which is Lord. That's the Greek word for Lord. And if you go to Mass, sometimes you hear the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. But if they do it in the, sometimes you'll hear it, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. Is that Latin? Trick question, no. It's Greek. That's the, like, from the oldest part of the Catholic liturgy, in Greek, still carried over, we say it even at Mass, okay? 
Lord have mercy, we're calling on the divine name. This is the name of God. Okay, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 52. You find out Lord keeps popping up all over the place in capital letters. That's this mysterious name of God. And what do you learn in Isaiah? There is only one. All of the others are, are not gods. And look at the second paragraph of Isaiah 45. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word which shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Right? And the same is true in Isaiah 52. There is only one Lord. Okay, now, fast forward to the New Testament. Okay, Jesus uh, preaches, he suffers, dies, and is raised again. St. Paul is writing about this to the Philippians. Now, okay, another historical footnote, which you might be thinking, Father, this is all footnotes. Can you get to the main text, please? Um, okay, but actually, this is I find this extremely interesting. If you look at your New Testament, what's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew. Okay, Is Matthew's Gospel the first one that was written? No. Why is it there listed first? Uh, that's actually a very interesting question. Why did they put the books of the New Testament in the order that they're in? Okay, uh, The letters of St. Paul seem to be arranged from longest to shortest, so it's not in chronological order. That's what's important. Okay. So actually, some of the letters of St. Paul were written before the Gospels. So they, they are older, in a way, than the Gospels. St. Paul is writing before the Gospels may even have been composed. So there's obviously a Christian community that's worshiping Jesus or worshiping the Trinity in through Jesus. Or Okay, this is these are all questions, like exactly what did that look like? And St. Paul is writing to them so the letter to the Philippians contains a passage where St. Paul is writing to this Christian community in Philippi, the city of Philippi, and he has visited them before. So now he's writing to them after he's visited them. And in the second chapter, he quotes something. And if you read it in Greek, you discover this is a poem. It's in verse. Well, in fact, it's probably not even just a poem. It's probably a hymn. So he's quoting to them a hymn that probably they sang together. If that's the case, then that hymn was, I mean, it's possible that it was just composed by St. Paul on the fly, but probably not. I mean, we don't know for sure, but probably not. Probably it was a hymn that already existed when St. Paul visited the community in Philippi which means that that hymn is the oldest single piece of writing that we have that speaks about Jesus. Okay, so that's, that's what you've got on this page. This is the hymn from Philippians. So it's probably the single oldest bit of writing we have that mentions Jesus or says anything about him. And what does it say? Okay, it doesn't just say, oh, Jesus was a nice guy and he preached you know, and had this message. No, let's look at what it says. It has this kind of inverted V. And it sort of, so it sort of starts on high and shows a descent to the cross and then the exaltation of Jesus. All right, so 
Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Okay, just stop there. What does that mean? Jesus, okay, well, actually, let's, let's uh, keep going for just one second, I'll, then I'll stop. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Okay. He took the form of a slave, having emptied himself. So, St. Paul is saying, or the him, is saying, he existed before he became in human form. Say, pre-existence of Jesus. Okay, whoa, that's a very significant fact, right? And if we go back up to the very first line there, he didn't just pre-exist, he was in the form of God. That's another way of saying that he, he was God. He, he had the very essence of God or the very form of God. And he did not need to reach out to grasp being equal to God because that's simply what he was. He was equal to God. Okay, now this is confusing. Is, okay, hold on. Are you saying, is he God? Is he the Father? What's, is this your question? Okay, stay with me. Okay, stay with me. We're, that's where we're headed, right? Okay, it's, it provokes all kinds of questions. It's good to have those questions. That's, that's what this class is about. All right, let's, let's go back to where we left off. He was known to be of human estate, and it was thus. What does that thus mean? It was thus. It was as human, insofar as he took on the form of a slave, that he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. Now, by the way, death on a cross is in bold. That's the only part of this hymn that doesn't fit the poetic meter. Mm -hmm. So either St. Paul stuck that in there, or it was like, or the poem was sort of breaking the meter to kind of accentuate that, that line. So death on a cross is the very center of the hymn. It's like the central truth about Jesus. He pre-existed as God. He emptied himself. And what is the center point of that descent? The cross. So the cross is the center. Okay, and then because of this, now we're going up the other side. Because of this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Now, this is, this is sort of mind-blowing. If you put yourself in the mindset of a first-century Jew, right? That's St. Paul, first-century Jew. So that at Jesus' name, Jesus' name, every knee must bend in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, whoa, what does that mean? Understand what that means by looking back at the other side of the page. Isaiah 45. Was it not I, the Lord? This is the, uh, the end of the first paragraph of Isaiah 45. And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone forth a righteousness in righteousness and the word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Whoa. St. Paul is saying that that Lord now bears the name of Jesus 
Jesus Christ is Lord. He bears the divine name. That is the name that was revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. That is the name that is so holy that no Jew would pronounce it. And it's coordinated with the glory of God the Father. Okay, so now there are two, two mentions of God. We have God the Father, and now we have Jesus, who also bears the name of God. Okay, what in the world is St. Paul saying? I thought he was a monotheist, right? Well, is he not a monotheist? That is the question. Like, this text is absolutely unthinkable for a first century Jew if you, I mean, he would not be proposing polytheism. So it's clearly not that. It's clearly something else. And this is at the heart of the revelation of Jesus. So it requires us now to make some distinctions about speaking about the one God. So Christians believe in one God. There is only one. Three persons. What does that mean? Okay, it's mysterious. But let's just get the, like the, the um, issue on the table here. It is not to believe that there are three gods. It is to believe that there is one God. It's the same God of the Old Testament who says that there are no gods besides me. But now what is being revealed to us is that there is some kind of uh, distinction that we discover through Christ. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So each, now here I'm just going to give you some, some hardcore uh, Catholic dogma. Okay, This is just uh, straightforward uh, affirmations if you want to talk about them, we can. But just to clarify what we're talking about, what the Catholic Church professes. Okay, one God, not three. Three divine persons. Each divine person is fully God, whole and entire. Okay, they are not parts of God. It's not like one part over here, another part over there. Each person is equal to the others and distinct from them. Okay, now you're probably saying, I, I don't think this is coherent. Now, some people have thought that this was not coherent, but now let me uh, try to take you to the next level. Okay, the names here are helpful for understanding what we're talking about. So think about the names Father and Son. You can just start with that. Uh, do we have anybody here who is uh, the oldest child in the family? Okay. So your, uh, your father, did he have any other children before you? Okay. Did you become a daughter before your father became a father? No. Did your father become a father before you were a daughter? Well, no. No, no. The point is, these are terms expressing a relation, right? So for there to be a father, there has to be a son or a daughter, right? There has to be a child. If, you, if you're a father and you say, but I have no children, I've never had any children, then you, you say, well, okay, we're talking about father in some special sense here, but it's not not the normal way we speak about that. So father implies son. And son implies father. They are not terms that designate um, like 
distinct realities, but a relational, it's a, it's a pair of relations. Relations that cannot even be thought without the other. Now that's helpful because that's sort of where we want to push our minds to as we begin to understand divine persons in, in one God. Because the claim is that these are not three gods, but they are absolutely one, although distinct, and their distinction is based on relations. Okay, so we're making a little progress. Now we can go a little further. Scripture also reveals, so there are probably questions, and I'm, I'm happy to take some questions in just a minute. Let me get through these analogies, and then I'll take some questions. So scripture also reveals another name for the son. The prologue of John's Gospel. Does anybody remember this? What's the what's the name given to him there? In the beginning was the word, right? Okay, so the son is the word. All right, so um, reflecting on this, some of the great saints, especially St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, those are the two who've probably reflected on this most fruitfully, developed what, what many, myself included, consider to be the best created analogy for understanding what we're talking about. Okay, the, how, how we can say that there are three persons but there's only one God. Okay, so here's the analogy. It's the analogy of, of word and love. Okay, so thought experiment. Think of yourself. Okay, just right now, try and think yourself. Don't just think of yourself, think yourself. Right? You're trying to, in your own mind, generate uh, an image of yourself. Okay, now don't just think of your body. Right? Think of your whole personality. Think of your whole person. And think of your, your whole life, all of your experiences, everything that you are, all the depth of your being. Okay? Can you do that? Probably only rather imperfectly. Um, and it's kind of difficult, partly because we're, we're mysteries to ourselves to a degree. Like you can, you can learn something about yourself. You're like, oh, I didn't realize I was so mad at him. But actually I've learned something about myself. Like that really bothers me. I didn't think it did, but it really did. Okay, so we're, we're somewhat opaque to ourselves. So we can't even think of ourselves perfectly. Okay, but suppose now that you were, um, you, you were a perfect mind, an infinite mind. You see where I'm going with this? If you were perfect, an infinite mind that knew yourself perfectly, you'd be able to think of yourself perfectly. And especially if you didn't have a body, if you weren't in time and changing, but you were in eternity and you were perfect, and you are a perfect intellect, an infinite perfect intellect, would you be able to think of yourself? Okay, now imagine if you, okay, well, we're talking about God here, right? Okay, so now this is what I'm trying to get at, right? Okay, if you have a perfect spiritual mind that thinks itself, it generates by thinking itself a perfect image of itself, right? That perfect image of itself is now in the mind of God. Is, okay, so now we can pause. Okay, press pause. Now, zoom out, think about this. Is that image 
in God's mind of himself different from himself? How, how could it be? Okay, how could it be different from himself? If he knows himself perfectly and he, he conceives in his mind a perfect image of himself, there would be absolutely no difference there at all. It would be absolutely perfectly the same. Only one distinction there. The image in his mind would be from his mind. He would be the one conceiving, and then you would have the one conceived. This is what we are talking about when we're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about the procession of the word. So it's like the perfect, the one perfect word that God speaks, which, which expresses absolutely perfectly, precisely who he is. So the Father is the speaker, and the Son is the word, the one eternal word that is eternally spoken. And there is absolutely no difference between them, except that the Father speaks and the Son is spoken, or the Son is from the word. Or to put it in more technical terms, the Son is begotten, and the Father begets in eternity. And what is it? It's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being or consubstantial with the Father. That is of the very same substance. There is no difference. Okay, this is the profession of faith. So we would never know that there is a Father and a Son. If God had not shown up and said, I am the Son and I'm speaking of my Father who sent me. But he also says that the Father and I are one. So this is how Christian reflection has tried to unpack that scriptural truth. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? Okay, so there's, there's two acts or two powers that anyone who has the power of reason uh, is capable of doing. And this is true also about angels, and it's true also about God, who has a, God has a rational nature, a rational nature infinitely above ours. That's to know and to love. So, we have one divine person who proceeds from the Father by way of knowing. That's the Father conceiving himself in his mind and speaking this one word that as he knows himself, there is like another self there or another person who is absolutely identical to him. And notice this doesn't go out into the world. It remains in God. It remains in, your, like if you were thinking yourself, you'd be, the idea of yourself would remain in your mind. So there's not like another thing outside of you. It's within you. It's trying to get at the, the fact that there's not like something new outside of God that's produced. Okay, but as, so there's, there's the way of knowledge, but there's also the way of love. That is, as you know yourself, you can love what you know. You love yourself. You love what you see as perfectly good. So this is a kind of second procession as the Father and Son breathe forth love. So as the Father knows himself, he loves what he knows, and that love is the Holy Spirit. So this is how, this is the what many would say, I mean, I would, I would argue for this, is the best 
analogy for us to understand how you can have three persons who are not three separate beings. They're not three separate gods. They're in one God, but they are distinct. And they're distinct precisely according to this set of reciprocal relations. The father thinks the son, you might say, or speaks the son. And the father and the son, in loving each other, produce another divine person who is love. Okay, so maybe I should just stop there and ask if you have some questions. Now, I haven't even gotten to, to Jesus Christ, true God and true man. So we've got, and that's not to be forgotten here. So I, I want to get to that too. But let me pause for a minute. I mean, we could talk for a long time about this, I'm sure. But I want to... Okay, yeah, we could talk about that. Okay, so this is um, uh, just for a little historical background here. Uh, the, the, you know, Christendom was united uh, with, I mean, there are a few blips in the history where you had uh, disagreements. I'll even talk about some of those if you want when we talk about Christ. Um, but there was a, a big break in the 11th century, and one of the issues, now I would argue that the, there's like a theological uh, hook that they hung the disagreement on, but it also was a disagreement that had a lot to do with politics and culture, because you had the Roman Empire for a long time, like very spread out, you had an Eastern capital and a Western capital, they, they began to disagree, you had political disagreements between them, and then this eventually sort of broke in half. So you had Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. And there was a theological um, argument that was kind of the immediate point of conflict, but I don't think it was the real reason for the break. So, um, but it was precisely over this issue about whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father only or from the Father and the Son. So, um, now, we could get into a lot of the details there. I, would, I think you can make a case that the way the East understood it, which was that it, uh, they were claiming he proceeds from the Father only, and the West was saying the Father and the Son, uh, that this was actually not as significant a disagreement as it sounds, uh, because of, they understood he proceeds from the Father through the Son, rather than saying the Father and the Son. Okay. Uh, but St. Thomas Aquinas has an argument about why it must be Father and Son. The argument goes like this. When we're talking about um, a divine person, how do you distinguish divine persons? Well, how do you distinguish human persons? Uh, like, we have different bodies. We, have, we exist in different places, physical locations. We have different parents. Okay? So our, our bodies are what distinguish us from each other. That doesn't work with God. God doesn't have a body. So you can't distinguish God on that basis. Okay, well, angels don't have bodies either. All right, so can we distinguish angels from each other? Yes, because each angel is a different species, a different kind. Okay. Are the divine persons different species? Oh, wait a second, don't say that. Why? If you say that, you've just become a polytheist. 
right? Now you have multiple gods. Okay, so the divine persons have to be precisely the same in essence. Or they, they will not be the same god. So the only way you can distinguish the divine persons is by the, the relations between them. So they have to have distinct patterns of relations. What are the patterns? And this is our, where Aquinas is going. The only way to have a distinct pattern for three persons is to have the pattern father uh, begets the son and then father and son breathe forth the Holy Spirit. The reason for that is you have to have one person who is only the origin, that's the father. Father has no principle behind him, right? The father is, is unoriginate. He's without a principle. The son has a principle. Who is it? The father. But the son is also a principle of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has two principles, but is not the principle of any other divine person. So now you have the pattern of relations that allows you to distinguish the three persons. Have I answered your question? Maybe, yeah. Okay, so now I'd like to switch to talking about the mystery of Jesus Christ. Okay, now these are related mysteries, obviously. Well, it, maybe I should say um, uh, there's, a, there's a great heresy. Before we move to Jesus, uh, there's a great heresy, crystal or a, a Trinitarian heresy, um, that was first proposed by a guy named Sibelius. Sibelius claimed that um, God is really one, but he just looks like three to us because he relate like when God begins relating to the world, we think of him as creator, and then we say that's the father, and we think of him as the savior or the redeemer, and we say, okay, that's the son, and then we think of him as sanctifying us in our own, like invisibly in our own hearts, and that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, this was ruled out. Heresy, do not, do not make that claim. Why? Because we do not want to say that God only becomes a trinity in time or that God is affected by the world. We want to say that God is eternally a trinity. We're talking about something that is eternal in God, that he reveals to us in time, yes. But, but he is eternally this way. Okay, so that's why Sibelius, uh, Sibelianism is out. I don't want to find out any of you have become Sibelians. I'll have to, I'll get my license as a theologian revoked. Okay, um, now you can, you can look at um, this handout, because now I'm basically just going to kind of uh, uh, run through this uh, a little bit. Well, there, there's lots of different ways to treat uh, the mystery of Christ. Um, so... Um, yeah, maybe I'll just start. Maybe I'll just follow the, the outline that I've got here. I've got some stuff that I that I very much like to say about history, knowing Christ um, as a historical figure. Um, but maybe we can save that for the Q and A. If you have questions about that. Okay, so the great heretics and heroes of the patristic age. Okay, I listed the first three kind of heresies. These are just helpful because they're common mistakes that probably you've heard. Like if you. Well, when I taught, I taught at Providence College for a while, taught a theology course, and I would start off and try and get the students to explain at the beginning of the class in their own words, like the mystery, 
and be like, okay, great. We've just now, like, we've gotten five different explanations. We've just identified the five great heresies, like, so we can now proceed to X these off. They're very, like, if you're sitting at, at uh, you know, you're sitting out on your porch having a beer or talking to your buddy, you're trying to work this out, you're probably, um, there are kind of typical ways that, that conversation can go wrong. Um, and the church has dealt with it, you know, so that's why it's helpful to, to lay these out, right? All right, so the first one is adoptionism. Now, why is this wrong? Well, think back to the, okay, what, what is it saying? It's saying, um, okay, you start off with this, this man, Jesus, who's just a human being, but then, like, God decides to use him and raises him up and raises him up with such profound gifts of grace that he becomes like the super prophet, like the prophet above all other prophets. And therefore, like, he's able to reveal God in a unique way because he's just been so exalted by God. But he started off as a man and then was adopted as a son of God. Now, this was actually an ancient early theory, um, but it does not work with the Gospels. Uh, nor with the writings of St. Paul. And certainly if you think back to the, the Philippians hymn, right, that is definitely out. He pre-existed. He was not a mere man who was adopted. He started off as the son, and then he became man. Okay, so that's like a very primitive Christian confession of faith, and that's why when you have people proposing this theory about Jesus as just adopted as a son of God, they were the church responded and said, that does not correspond to what we believe, what we have always believed about Jesus. Okay, then there, by the way, just about adoptionism, sometimes you hear people say, well, he didn't like really receive this power from on high until his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended on him. Okay, that's the way this often goes. But that is not the traditional Christian understanding. The descent of a dove at Christ's baptism was not so that Jesus would discover, oh, Actually, I'm the son of God. Um, but so, so that other people would, it would be a witness to other people of, of who he already is and always was. That's, that's certainly the Catholic profession of faith. Okay, Gnosticism. Now this is actually a very tricky one because uh, the Gnostics, and Gnosticism is still with us, absolutely. Um, some You can even go to the, the bookstore, if you can find a bookstore, um, and go to the... Uh, Gang of ages, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. You can, you can go to the religion section, and you'll be able to find, like, Gnostic Gospels. Okay, there are Gnostic Gospels. The Da Vinci Code, if you remember, the Da Vinci Code is largely based on Gnostic Gospels. Um, so these are uh, writings that actually originated much later than the Gospels in the New Testament. So the Gospels in the New Testament were written somewhere between the 50s and probably the 50s and the 80s AD. Maybe the Gospel of John is a little later than that. It might be 90s AD. You know, okay, Jesus would have died 34 AD, 33, like between in sometime in the 30s. Um, by the way, you know, we would say 33 AD, except that there are problems like when they redid the calendar in the Middle Ages, they may have gotten the date for AD zero wrong, and so, you know, it might not be what, okay, we don't need to get into that, but somewhere at 30s AD. 
So if the Gospels written in the 50s, that's like 20 years later. You know, that's actually relatively recent. I mean, they're fairly close to the to the time. The the Gnostic Gospels were all written in the second century or later. So we're talking like more than 100 years after Jesus. And they were written in a context very far from Palestine. So they don't display any familiarity with Jewish customs or with Palestinian geography or anything like that. Whereas the, the four Gospels that we do have in the, in the Bible, these do display those things. So just on the level of history, already there would be good reason to be skeptical of those Gnostic Gospels as historical records, like accurate records. But even more problematic than, than the historical question is that in fact Gnosticism was like a, a, some weird um, Eastern religions, like Eastern mystery religions. And basically what, what scholars now think happened is they just, they saw that Christianity was being successful. They were like a rival religion. And so they decided to take some Christian um, window dressing and glom it on to their, their Eastern uh, religion. So what you get is a figure of Jesus who isn't really at all like the Jesus you find in the, in the Christian Gospels. Very different. So you're, you're not saved by the cross. You're saved by hidden knowledge, secret knowledge that you learn. Um, all kinds of weird, uh, like revulsion against the body. Like they think that, that matter is evil. Okay, then why would God become man? Why would he take on flesh? They, they would have no explanation for that. So it's deeply not Christian, actually, on that level. All right, so the Gnostics, you know, you will sometimes find people writing books as if the Gnostic Gospels show you the secret life of Jesus that the Christians were trying to cut out of the, out of the picture, and you can learn who he really was if you go to these other sources. The problem is these other sources are not historically reliable. They were written much later. They probably were had very different motives, like they probably had a real agenda for writing what they wrote. Um, so they're not really credible in terms of, like serious historians themselves do not take them as credible sources. Um, all right, docetism. This is related to Gnosticism and it comes from the word to, uh, to appear, to seem. And the claim in docetism is, oh, okay, God did not really become man. He just seemed to. He just walked around like he took on the appearances of a man, but really it was just like a, uh, like a, a phantom body or something. Holograph. Or maybe, pardon? Holograph. A holograph. It's an avatar, you know, right? You know, it's like the Matrix or something. It's it's once again it's a it's it's a denial of the truth of the incarnation, and the Docetists specifically rejected the the claim that Jesus died on the cross. They said, oh, no, he didn't really die. That, because that's, actually, it's very hard theologically to account for God dying on the cross. So, like, I want to say, guys, I didn't make this up. Like, if I had been making it up, I wouldn't have made it up this way. This is awfully hard to, like, explain. But it is, in fact, what God has revealed to us. So it's shocking and surprising, and it's difficult, but it doesn't mean that it's false. We can actually make some sense of it. Okay, so docetism thinks that Jesus didn't really become man. He just was God in like a man suit. Um, but the the humanity didn't really um, belong to him. It was just an appearance. 
All right, those, those three are fairly easy to, to get by. Um, the Aryan crisis, this was a very great crisis in the fourth century AD, the early fourth century, started in three, uh, I think 318 AD. Okay, so this priest named Arius, he lived in Constantinople, and he began preaching something that his bishop immediately found totally scandalous. And he was preaching that the son is less than the father as, like, not just as man, but that the word is, the word as word is less than the father. And his tagline was, he had this, like, this little chant that he made up that he taught to the people in his parish. There was when he was not. So if you kind of unpack that, there was a time when he didn't exist. In other words, that the word is a creature. The word was created. Now a very high, exalted creature, like above all the angels, a quasi-divine, you know, kind of figure, but not the same as God, less than God. And in fact, he even said things like, the word uh, doesn't fully understand the Father because he's finite and the Father is infinite. Things like that. Okay, now why is this such a danger? Why, why was Arius's bishop so scandalized? Because, like, this is destroying Christianity. This is saying that Jesus is not God. Jesus is like an angel, like a very powerful angel, but less than less than God. And it seems to contradict things that Jesus himself says, like the Father and I are one. So the Council of Nicaea met in 325, convened by the, by the Roman Emperor, Constantine. So it's so an assembly of bishops in the city of Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey. And they reaffirmed the, Christian, the, the traditional faith. Now, sometimes you hear people say, oh, the Council of Nicaea, what happened there? The, um, the church got together and decided that Jesus was God. Okay, that's a total misunderstanding of the history because the church always believed that Jesus was God. The problem was all of a sudden you had this priest running around claiming the opposite and the church immediately reacted by saying, that's crazy, that's not what we believe. So we have to condemn that. And that's what happened in the Council of Nicaea. So the idea that Jesus is God was not invented in 325 AD. I mean, St. Paul was talking about it in Philippians 2, okay? But the Council of Nicaea says that the Son is consubstantial with the Father. And it, so that's where that phrase in the creed, our creed that we say on Sundays, is basically the nice, it's basically the creed from the Council of Nicaea. And they then included all these lines, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, because they wanted to say, it's not like, God from true God, as if this is some kind of lesser God. It's like the same God. It's true God. Okay? I'm going to move now quickly here just to get through some of the rest of uh, this so that we'll have time for some more questions. St. Athanasius, he, um, he was a deacon at the Council of Nicaea. He was the deacon of, of the bishop who had been Arius's bishop in Constantinople. And shortly after Nicaea, he was then made the bishop of, uh, of sorry, Arius was a priest of Alexandria, not Constantinople, my, my mistake. He was, Athanasius was then later made bishop of Alexandria. 
And he wrote some of these very beautiful, very important uh, works defending the Nicene Creed because not everyone, uh, well, there's a kind of continuing unrest over the condemnation of Arius. And St. Athanasius develops uh, this um, way of reading the Gospels. He says, you have to have a double account of Jesus because he has both a divine nature and a human nature. So he's both God and man. God truly assumes a human nature to himself. So with some things that he does, you see his divinity at work. And with other things that he does, you see his humanity at work. So he gives this great example. Uh, when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, do you remember this episode from the Gospel? Do you remember how Jesus heals her? She has a fever. Any of the Dominicans? Come on. He, he, he touches her and raises her up. Like he literally just like raises her up with his touch and the fever left her, the gospel says. So how does that work, Athanasius says? Well, God miraculously heals her. Okay, that's not so surprising. Can God touch her with a human hand? Well, as God, you know, the divine nature does not have a body as God. So no. Um, but Jesus assumes a body. Jesus assumes a complete human nature. So the body of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, does what is proper to a human nature, reaches out and touches her. And the divinity of Jesus does what is proper to the divinity, miraculously heals. Now these things do not happen on like parallel tracks, as if the humanity, the man Jesus is doing this over here and then God is like zapping her. No, the point is God is acting through the touch of Jesus. And that begins to show you something of the mystery of Christ. This is God who has assumed a human nature and now acts with the divine power through a human body, a human nature, a humanity, as his instrument. Okay, instrument, this is very helpful. How does a carpenter, like a carpenter is gonna make a, a table Right? He's got a piece of wood. He needs to make it level so he gets, the, he gets a plane or he gets a saw. He's going to cut it into the right size. The carpenter does not have the power of his own hands to, to cut wood. Right? His hands are not apt to cut wood. A saw is apt to cut wood, like a saw does the cutting. But the carpenter really cuts the wood too, right? Like you can say the saw cuts the wood and the carpenter cuts the wood. How do they cut the wood? They cut the wood in different ways. Like the saw uses what is proper to it. It's sharp, it has like serrated teeth. It's able to saw through the wood. But the saw needs to be moved by the human hand of the carpenter. So the saw's activity, which is to cut, is drawn into the higher activity of the carpenter, which is to make a table. So it's right to say that the saw is making the table, 
But it's even more true to say that the carpenter is making the table through the saw as his tool or his instrument. And the same pattern works with Jesus. The word is healing Peter's mother-in-law through his humanity, which is like an instrument of his divinity. And in fact, we could go even further and say he saves the whole world this way. So he goes to the cross and he makes the perfect reparation for sin through his human body, which is an act of both God and man. And it has now a divine effect because of the, the union of the human nature and the divine nature in the word, in the person of the word. Okay, there's a lot more that could be said about this. Let me just um, run through the last few heresies here just to get them out on the table, and then I'll stop and we can, we can have some Q&A. Um, the next major heresy said that Jesus was not true man. He only was partially a man, like he was a human body with the divine logos, the divine word. Didn't have a human mind. That's Apollinaris. The church condemned that after the Council of Nicaea. They said, oh, he's not only a human, it's not just human flesh there, it's a human mind too. And by the way, further on, we'll say a human intellect and a human will. That means Jesus has a human mind, a human soul, a human will. The Son, then, after taking flesh, has two minds. He has a divine mind and a human mind. He has a divine will and a human will. Because his human nature is complete. He is a complete human, human uh, nature. A complete instance of humanity. Uh, point D. One person in Christ or two. This is uh, the heresy of Nestorianism. Nestorius was a priest. He was a priest of Constantinople. And this, this uh, controversy, this started in the 5th century, 449, if I remember right. Um, this started when he began preaching in the cathedral, in the Hagia Sophia, which you can go visit in Constantinople, or in Istanbul, right? It's now a mosque. Um, but he preached in that, in that very church that Mary should not be called the mother of God because she only gave birth to Christ, not to the word. Now, the problem with this is it leads to a division in Jesus. So you'd say, oh, well, what we say of this man, we cannot say of the divine word or of the son. But if you, if you go down that route, you end up with two persons. You have it, the person of Jesus, and then you have the person of the divine son. And that, that is, does not work because we want to say that the divine son suffered on the cross for our sins. If it was not God or the Son of God who suffered on the cross for our sins, then we have not been saved. So we do not want to say that there are two persons there. There's only one person. Okay, now this connects us back to the Trinity. The Trinity is one God with three persons. Christ is one person. It's the Son. But there are two natures, that is, the divine nature to which has been added a complete human nature. 
And that human nature belongs only to the son. So this is the final uh, kind of conclusion of this period of great uh, heresies, controversies. St. Leo the Great and the Council of Chalcedon who make clear that you have in Jesus one divine person, the person of the Son, who has two complete human, uh, two complete natures, one divine, one human. They're not confused. They're not mixed together. They are distinct. And now the, here's the last point that I'm going to make. Remember that phrase consubstantial? The Son is consubstantial with the Father. That came out in Nicaea more than 100 years before um, to, to take care of Arius. That was to say that the Son is really one in being with, one in substance with the Father. Council of Chalcedon now says that the Son, in virtue of his human nature, is now also consubstantial with us. So there's actually two consubstantial uh, you know, truths here. The Son with the Father and the Son as man with us. So what is the consequence of this? That God has really entered into our condition so that he can unite it to something infinitely higher so that he can give us a share in the divine nature. And that is the promise that you find, I mean, that sounds actually outrageous if you stop to think about it for a minute, but that is the promise in Scripture, Second Peter, uh, so that we might become sharers in the divine nature. So this is, in fact, what salvation looks like, according to the Christian faith. That in Christ, you become able to be raised up to share the nature of God. Not, you are not consubstantial with the Father. Okay, that we never make it quite that far. 